You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you wanted to give up? Uh, Maybe it's because... There's a problem you couldn't solve, or there is an issue you couldn't fix, and as a result, uh, after trying to do all that you can, you just, you just threw in the towel. You said, like, I, I'm ready to give up. There's nothing I can do to make the situation better. Have you ever been there? <clears throat> I remember about seven years ago, I had one of these moments in my life. My wife and I had just moved into a house in Carriage Hills, and there were a few things that needed to be fixed, and one of those things was a leaky faucet. And so I thought, how hard can that be, you know, uh, a leaky faucet? And by the way, let me just, I want to see a show of hands. Um, how many of you have been told before, you already knew, that, that if you're going to take faucet handles off of a tub, that you're supposed to kill the water supply first? How many of you knew that? Okay. I doubt there's that many that really know that, but okay. <clears throat> you know where this is going, so you're like, oh yeah, that's what that's what you're supposed to do. Well, I didn't know that. Uh, I actually even read the instructions on the handles, not before I did this, but after to see if it said anything about killing the water supply. It did not. Um, And so I go to remove the hot water handle on our tub in our master bathroom. And after like kind of two cranks trying to loosen the nut, all of a sudden, I kid you not, by the way, I know that pastors exaggerate all the time. What I'm about to tell you, I'm going to try to recount it exactly as it happened, okay? Uh, And so, true story, my wife's here. She can vouch for this. Go to loosen the nut, and when I do, man, that handle, that sucker just like shoots like a bullet straight into our ceiling. And, 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 and following after that is just this, this flaming hot water that is coming out at like the speed and the pressure of a fire hydrant. Uh, uh, some of you are laughing. And so, listen, look, <clears throat> I usually try to stay pretty calm and cool like in crisis moments. But when this happened, our bathroom immediately like began to flood. Like there's water everywhere, and I began to freak out. Um, I, I had no idea what to do, so I like grabbed the handle, and I'm like trying to shove it back in the hole. It's like ah, it's like you know the water's so hot it's burning my head. Like, it burns right, and so like I'm shoving it in there, and it, that's not working. And so in this moment, I just do like the only thing I know to do, and it's like I just begin to yell at my wife, who was standing there with me, and I'm like Megan do something. And she's like, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, call your dad. Like, uh, like the police, somebody, like somebody's got to fix this. And <clears throat> so she runs and she gets these towels and she puts the towels like on the floor. She's trying to clean up the water and this water's still coming out. So I grab a towel and I, I throw it over the open and I'm sitting there. I'm like, I don't know how long I sit here and hold this for. I don't know what do we do. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me that, that uh, the hot water heater's right beside us and I can just turn that off. And so uh, I, I turn the hot water heater off and and that kind of like, you know, helped us kind of, you know, with that crisis. But then a new problem uh, came up because I, I put the, the, the handle back on the little, you know, where the, the, the hot water handle is. But then whenever I turned the water uh, back on, what I realized is now there was water, even more water than ever, coming out of uh, the faucet. And this time it wasn't even hot water, it was cold water. So I have no idea what to do at this point, right? And so I call a plumber, a guy who's done a lot of work in our church, and his name's Tommy. I said, Tommy, what's going on here, man? What do I need to do? And he said, look, I think you probably blew an O-ring. Um, now, let me see a show of hands. Any of you know what an O-ring is? Of course y'all do. <clears throat> so I didn't know what an O-ring was, so I Googled O-rings. And so I'm like, okay, this is what an O-ring should look like. And so 
I actually go and uh, turn the the main water supply off because Tommy's like, look, if you don't turn the main water supply off, like when you take the cold water handle off, it's going to be the exact same thing. So let me just save you the trouble. So I go turn off the main water supply, go back in, take the handles off, look at the O-rings. They look just fine to me. Put it all back together. Put the handles on. Turn the water supply back on. Turn the hot water heater back on. Turn uh, the, the and go back in the house and and the, the faucet's still leaking. It's still dripping. Like it, it didn't fix anything. So I go turn it back off. <clears throat> I open everything back up. I look at the O rings again. And I'm like, okay, maybe I need to buy new O rings, just like Tommy said. So I run to Walmart at 10:15 at night. It's a Saturday. I'm going to preach the next day, but I run to Walmart to get O rings. And, and guess what? Uh, here's a little pro tip for you. Apparently, Walmart carries everything but O-rings. But you all probably already knew that, didn't you? <clears throat> and so I leave Walmart, I go home, and just the cycle starts, it kind of it keeps going, where I take the handles off, I try to recalculate things, put it back in there, turn the water back on, like everything is still, and, and finally I just like, I just like cried out in desperation to God. I'm like, God, you've got to do something. Like for the sake of my marriage, you have to do something, because we're like yelling at each other, and eventually, like, you know what, like, I don't even know what I did, but we got the water to stop leaking, and my wife and I both lived uh, to see another day and to, and to tell this story. And the reason I'm telling the story to you is because uh, when I look at that situation, I think in some ways it, 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 it lets us in on how we feel spiritually speaking. And what I mean by that is there are, are times in our life, and maybe you're even there right now, where you feel like there are places within you that are broken beyond repair. Does that make sense? Like the, you look at your own life and you, you still see that despite your best effort, that you have certain sins or certain issues that continue to leak out from your life that are causing these, these real messes in your relationships, in relationships with your spouse, in relationship with your kids, relationship with your job, relationships with people in your, your missional communities, these real messes that are real issues. <clears throat> and maybe as a result, you sit here and you, you hear this and, and you're like, yeah, that's right. And the question maybe you're asking is, is why? Like, why is that? Like, why is it that I continue to struggle with the same specific sins in my life? I, like, I know that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but, but why these specific sins, a sin of lust or, or, or pornography? Why do I have these issues of greed and, 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 and maybe anxiety and, and, and gossip or whatever they are, these things that keep cropping up, this rage or these anger issues that, that are causing these relational dysfunctions in my life? Why? And, and though there are many reasons for why this could be, at least one very critical factor that plays a role in all of this is your family of origin. Because the past is never completely in the past, where you come from, for better and for worse, has a big impact on your relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with one another. <clears throat> and I think one of the, the best cultural examples that I can give of this uh, reality is, is actually the number one hit show in America right now, Yellowstone. And just for the record, I've never watched an episode of Yellowstone. I'm not endorsing it. But I know enough about this show to know that it's about this family you see on the screen, the Duttons. And I know that they worked really hard to get this land, that now they work really hard to protect. They'll do anything to protect the land, even if it means murdering other people to keep the land. And if you watch the show, I mean, uh, what viewers begin to, to notice is that this family is so dysfunctional. There's so much rage and bitterness and immorality. They kind of make their own law. There's, there's sibling rivalry and favoritism because they're so dysfunctional. People went up to the director, Taylor Sheridan, over and over again and said, help us understand why they are the way that they are. And do you know what his response was? Like, 
he went and he made two new shows, 1883 and 1923, which literally are shows that are all about their family of origin. In other words, what Taylor Sheridan is saying is if you really want to know why they're so jacked up, you got to go back. You got to go back for generations to see the trauma and the pain and the sins and the struggles and the issues that have been passed down from generation to the generation that has made these people the way that they are. And what I want you to see today, and this is what uh, Pete Scazzaro talks about in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Relationships. If, if you remember, we said that's the book that's really kind of influenced a series. But what I want you to see today is, is that's not as true for the Duttons. Like, that's true for you and me. What happened back then doesn't just stay back then. Like, it impacts us today. And, and Scazzaro, he talks about this in his book, and here, here's the way he describes this. He says this. <clears throat> what happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. Consequences of actions and decisions taken in one generation affect those who follow. For this reason, it is common to observe patterns from one generation to the next, such as divorce, alcoholism, addictive behavior, sexual abuse, poor marriages, one child running off, mistrust of authority, pregnancy out of wedlock, and inability to sustain stable relationships, etc. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family that we have grown up in is the primary and except in rare instances the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. With that said, if we are going to become a people of love, if we're going to uproot some of these issues, if we're going to fix some of these things that cause us to leak out in and, and, and these really kind of gnarly ways that, that, that create messes in our relationships, if we're going to be a people who learn how to love one another as Christ has loved us, I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to take an honest look at our past and we have to begin to consider how we have been uniquely shaped in negative ways by the unique family that we have grown up in. Because as Cazero goes on to point out, Jesus may live in your heart, but your grandpa still lives in your bones. And you see, because that is true, if you're tired of some of the relational conflict you've been experiencing, you're tired of dealing with some of the same issues and making the same relational, relational messages and uh, messes, then together we have to go on this journey. This journey that, listen to me, is going to take some, some compassion, some curiosity and courage to go back so that we can then go forward and grow and mature more and more into a people of love. And to do that, I want us to start in Exodus 34, which is a passage that was read earlier. And just to set the context for you, Moses comes to God and he says to God, show me your glory, which means show me what you're really like. And then God says to Moses, I can't do that because if I do, it'll kill you. Just pretty bizarre, right? So he says, look, what I will do though is I'll just show you part of my back and then I will tell you my name. And so Moses says, show me your glory. Show me what you're really like. And God says, I'll tell you my name. And here's what he says about his name. This is Exodus 34, if you look with me in verse 6. <clears throat> and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. That word compassionate, by the way, it's a feeling word. It's what a mom feels towards her child. Gracious is an action word. And so what he's saying here is that uh, I'm not just a God who feels deeply like, Oh, I feel sad for you or whatever else. Like he moves into action. Does that make sense? Some of us look back and we're like, oh, I feel compassion. We don't do anything about it. Like God says, no, like, like I actually do something about it. I'm compassionate and I'm gracious. 
<clears throat> I'm also slow to anger. The word that is used in the Hebrew word means long of nostrils. It, what, he, what God is saying is I don't have a hair trigger temper. I don't fly off the handle, right? Like, like, like God does get angry, but you have to work really hard to get him there. That is not his default setting. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. So like the Bible Project says, God loves with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is kind of three ways of saying the same thing, or he's just trying to get at the point that, that I forgive sin of all shapes and sizes. No matter what you have been told, God wants to be clear with you today. There is no sin that is so horrific and so gross and so offensive that he cannot forgive it. As the prophet Micah says, God delights in showing mercy. But then look at this, what he says next. It says, he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so though God is a forgiving God, he's also a just God. And so when you sin, because he's holy and he's good, right, and perfect, he can't just sweep that under the rug like it's no big deal. He doesn't give like a little wink and be like, oh, boys will be boys or whatever else. That would make him a very bad, like unholy, unjust God. No, he says... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I want to be real clear today, like when you hear that, like, like, like I want you to understand, like the reason God does not leave the guilty unpunished is not because he's cold-hearted, but it's because there are some people who just don't want to be forgiven. There are some people who don't see their need for forgiveness. They don't think they've done anything wrong or they, they want to be God. They want to do things in their own terms. And because of their own decision to try to be God, to do things their way, God says that he, they end up being punished for their sins that they are responsible for. So he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And then look at this next line because this is what trips a lot of people up. <clears throat> and he will punish the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, what in the world does that mean? What is God saying here? Well, before I tell you what he's saying, let me tell you what he is not saying. And what God is not saying here, God is not saying that he will punish innocent children for the sins of their parents. It's not what he's saying. And we know that because 14 chapters earlier, he actually talks about these kids. And what we find out is they're not innocent. They commit the same sins their parents commit. They hate God the way their parents hated God. They worship the same idol. So we know he's not saying that they punish innocent children or God punishes innocent children because of their parents' sins because of that. But then not only that, but when you read the Bible, uh, we see there are all kinds of verses that say the exact opposite of that. All kinds of verses that make it clear that God does not punish innocent children for the sins of their parents. So for example, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says this, Parents are not to be put to death for their children nor children put to death for their parents, but each will die for their own sin. Here's another passage. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Here's just my point. God is not going to try to punish you just because he didn't like your grandpa. That's the point. He's, he's not going to intentionally make your life a living hell because your, your parents didn't tithe to the church or, or whatever it may be, which I think therefore begs the question, if that's not what he's saying, then what is he saying when he says that he punishes the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation? And what scholars all agree on is there's, there's actually two layers to this meaning, and both of them are very important for you to get. And here's the first thing that God is saying. The first thing that God is getting at is this. The sins of parents 
have consequences in the lives of children. Here's a question for you. If a husband decides to leave his wife and, and, and he has an affair and goes after another woman and he divorces her, will God punish his children for that? No, not according to what we just heard in the scriptures. But will there be consequences for the dad's actions? 100%. As any therapist or psychologist will tell you, despite what the culture says, divorce is not just a danger-free zone. That it actually does create consequences in the lives of our children. Now, it's not consequences we'll learn about later that you have to be just damned to. That it's just like, oh, that just is what it is. But there are definitely going to be consequences. And why is that? Because, again, the decisions and the sins of our parents do create consequences in the lives of kids. And this is actually what we see in Numbers chapter 14, verse 33, where God comes to Israel and he says, because of their disobedience, he says to them, quote, your children will suffer because of your unfaithfulness. And listen, I know that is a hard word today, but please hear me. Though God is forgiving, sin is not. Sin is not forgiving. Sin is cruel. Sin is merciless, and therefore the sins of parents do have consequences in the lives of children. But then not only that, not only do do the consequences of our parents' sin get passed down to kids, but our actual sins can get passed down to kids. You've heard the saying before, like father, like yes. Or the apple doesn't fall too far from the... Those are cliches we've all heard. And why are they cliches? Because they're true. Like we see in Yellowstone, one generation sin becomes the next generation sin and then becomes the next. And this is not just what we see in Hollywood. We actually see it in the scriptures. And I want you to see this for yourself because some of you are looking at me like, is this biblical? And so <clears throat> look at this with me. Genesis chapter 12. Turn me from there real quick. Genesis 12. And just to set the context for you, God comes to this man named Abram, who would later have a change, uh, name changed to Abraham, and he says, I want to I bless you and your wife. I know you're advanced in age. You're not supposed to be able to have kids, but I'm going to give you a kid. And through this kid is going to come a great nation, the nation of Israel, which will be a blessing to the other nations. That's a promise in Genesis chapter 12. You can read about it in verses 1 through 3. But then look, at, look with me in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. This is just a few verses down, same page, right after the promise. Look what we read. It says, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. He was about to enter Egypt, and he said unto his wife Sarai, who would later have her name changed to Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. It's really nice of him to say, right? Starting out well. Verse 12. But when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they're going to kill me but let you live. So he's afraid they're going to kill him to get to his wife. So verse 13 Here's the conclusion. Here's, how you say, here's, here's what I want you to do. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So do you see what Abraham just said? He, he said, look, I, despite the promises that God just said that he's going to make through us this great nation, I, I don't believe that. So in order to protect my own skin, I want you to pretend to be my sister. And even if this means you go around and sleep with other men, like, I don't care. Like, I just don't want to die. Which I think we can agree, like, that's pretty jacked up. And that doesn't just happen right here. Like, like this doesn't just become a one-time thing. It actually becomes a pattern. Flip with me over to Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Genesis 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Abraham 
moved on from there into the region of Negev, and he lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, uh, he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. And then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. And so not once, not twice, Abraham, not, twice, not once, but twice, Abraham has now lied in order to protect his own life. And this doesn't just stop with Abraham. But I want you to look with me to Genesis 26, because this, this gets passed down to another generation. Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. <clears throat> and look what happens here. This is Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous, uh, previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. It's sounding familiar. It's literally the exact same thing his father did. And look at this. Skip down to verse 7. When the men of that place asked him, or when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, Well, the men of this place, they will kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. When Isaac had been there for a long time, so apparently this is a sin, this is a lie he perpetuated for a very long time. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and he saw uh, Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So he's like, I don't think they're brother and sister. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's really your wife. Why did you say then she is my sister? And Isaac answered, because I thought I would lose my life on account of her. What a coward. I mean, he's absolutely afraid. And as a result, he does the exact same thing his dad did, exact same sin, with the exact same king in the exact same city. And we don't have time to read this passage, but if you went and looked at Genesis 26, go read that on your own today. Isaac and Rebekah eventually have two sons, one named Esau and the other named Jacob. And the name Jacob literally means deceiver. It means liar. And what does Jacob do? He steps into his identity. He actually, when he grows up, he steals his older brother Esau's birthright. He puts an animal skin on him. And then this really weird scene, he takes a bowl of soup to his dad and he deceives his dad. He lies to his dad in order to get, to get a blessing that does not belong to him. Fast forward some years later, Jacob has sons and the exact same thing begins to happen. Just as Isaac had a favorite son, which is never a good idea, Jacob also had a favorite son and it was Joseph. And because Joseph was his dad's favorite son, his other brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They were envious of him. So they actually come up with a plan to sell Joseph to slavery. They take his robe. They dip it in some sort of animal blood. And just as uh, Jacob brought a bowl of soup to his dad to deceive him, Jacob's sons bring Joseph's robe to their dad to deceive him. And how long do they keep this going? I mean, imagine how elaborate this lie had to be. I mean, there was probably a funeral for Joseph. They, they probably watched their mom and dad shed so many tears. And they were just, you know, oh, it's so sad. Yeah, we hate it, mom and dad, that Joseph's dead. And they knew he wasn't dead. He'd just been sold into slavery. And so here we are, right? Not just one generation in, not just two, not just three, but four generations. You see these people, these family members that are infamous for all the exact same sins, lying, deceit, favoritism, sibling rivalry, and dysfunctional marriage. This is why, as I heard one pastor say, Father Abraham had many sons, and apparently many sons had many issues, just like Father Abraham. And why is that? Because the consequences of parents, not just the consequences of parents, but even the sins at times of parents can be passed down. And listen to me very carefully, guys. Because we live in a fallen world, none of us are immune to that. 
no matter what household you grew up in. Like, we're all going to experience this on some level or another. You know, back in 2016, I started meeting with a guy named Rich Plass who wrote The Relational Soul. And before I started meeting with Rich Plass, if you would have asked me, I would have told you I have a perfect family, that I grew up in a perfect home. Um, and, And in many ways, my home was great. I mean, my dad was a pastor. My mom worked in the school district. They were married. They never beat each other. Uh, They never yelled at each other, cussed each other. I mean, they didn't get divorced. There was no scandal, no infidelity. Uh, We had a meal together uh, every single night around the table. Uh, We were in church three times a week. When I was sick, my mom would take care of me. She was there. Uh, I never went without food and clothing. My parents were very generous people. They would open up their homes every Friday night. My friends would come over. My mom would cook a bunch of stuff for me. It was absolutely uh, great. I mean, I grew up in a good home. But here's the thing, it wasn't a perfect home. I had great parents. They were not perfect parents. They had sins and issues that had been passed down to them that they actually would even pass on to me. Sins and issues that I still at times wrestle with as an adult. And so, for example, one of those is, as those of you who know me closely, you know I can be a perfectionist. Uh, that I can tend to, to struggle to rest unless everything is perfect. I need, I need, I need my, my, my marriage to be perfect. I need my kids to be perfect. I need a sermon to be perfect. I need the church to be perfect. Like I'm just, everything's got to be top notch. I'm the kind of guy that it's like, if we were like looking, you know, on vacation, it's like this, this beautiful landscape. I'm going to struggle to enjoy the beautiful landscape if there's a smudge on the window. It's like I'm going to see the smudge more than the beautiful landscape. I, it's just like something that is kind of in me, something that I have, have wrestled with for a long time. You know, and I came by this honestly. I mean, my grandfather, whenever he was in the nursing home, he was about three or four days from passing away, and we had an ambulance bring him back to his old house, and we were all going to get together as a family. And I remember when he came out of the ambulance, they wheeled him out of the ambulance, and he looked at my grandma, and he said, you need to make sure and trim the hedges. You're about to die, Grandpa. Trim the hedges, you know. Uh, I, I was talking to my aunt Carla a couple years ago, and she said, "You know, I remember Daddy used to always say that there's nothing, there, there's there's nothing worse that you would rather be, or nothing worse you'd rather be called." Am I saying that right? Nothing worse you could be called. Thank you, wife. There's nothing worse you could be called than for someone to call you lazy. In fact, that's the worst thing anybody could ever call you. And so my 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 grandfather worked two jobs, never stopped. My grandma also worked two jobs, never stopped. And she was a perfectionist like my grandpa. I mean, I remember on Christmas Eve several years ago, I'm like, I'm going to take a, a gift to my grandma for Christmas Eve. And I show up at her house. and like, here you go, grandma. Here's a, here's a gift for you. And she said, oh, I got something for you too. And she gives me a broom. And she says, can you please sweep my porch because there's some leaves on it. It's like, that's our family dynamic. And my mom, I mean, she's a perfectionist, right? You might call it OCD. It's like Megan knows, like, I grew up in an immaculate home. I mean, there was not dust on anything. There were no clothes laying around anywhere. The, 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 everything was perfect outwardly, at least looking in my house. My parents never stopped Saturdays. They worked even harder on Saturdays than they did any other day of the week. And, and as a result of some of this, listen, like, even as an adult now, because of this, just this ingrained pattern in my family, like, there are times where I can have unrealistic expectations of other people that actually end up hurt and damaging the relationship. And my point in sharing that is just to say this, listen, none of us are going to enter into adult life with a clean and empty slate. 
we're all on one level or another going to come into adulthood with some emotional, relational, and spiritual baggage that is passed down to us from our family. And that is the bad news. But are you ready for some good news? Here's some good news. No matter what happened in your past, it does not have to determine your future. Uh, Pete Scazzaro says it like this. Unfortunately, it is not possible to erase the negative effects of our history. This family history lives inside of all of us, especially those who attempt to bury it. And by the way, that's the point of this sermon. I do want you to stop burying it, to dig it up. Because if you can't talk about it, it will begin to control you. He says, oh, listen to this. The great news of Christianity is that your family of origin does not determine your future. God does. The most significant language in the New Testament for becoming a Christian is adoption into the family of God. You become a son of God, a daughter of God. That becomes your primary identity. It is this radical new beginning. When we place our faith in Christ, we are spiritually reborn by the Holy Spirit into the family of Jesus, and we are transferred out of darkness and into the kingdom of light. I think the most radical teachings from Jesus in all the New Testament are on this reality that when you give your life to Christ, you enter into a new family, into the family of God. And listen to this, guys. According to the scripture, the family of God in Jesus' eyes even supersedes the biological family. What I mean by that is according to Jesus, the, uh, the blood of Jesus that runs into our veins is more powerful than the blood of our ancestors that runs in our veins. And, and Jesus has a lot to say about the, just how powerful this family is and how it kind of supersedes the biological family. I mean, I think about in Mark chapter 3, whenever he's teaching and there's a crowd around and, and, his, and his family, his biological family are trying to get in. And someone says, hey, Jesus, your mom's out there, your brothers are out there, they're trying to get in. And he uses this as a teaching lesson. And he says in Mark chapter 3, whoever does God's will is actually my brother and my sister and my mother. It's, it's a radical statement. And he, he even goes on to say stuff like this. This is Luke 14, 26. Like, this is just Jesus' words, guys, I'm reading to you. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You ever read that before? You ever put that on a coffee mug? T-shirt? <clears throat> now, listen, scholars are real clear. Jesus is not saying that you literally should hate your mom and dad your brother and sister. But what he is saying is this. You should love him so much that it even makes your love for your biological family look like hate compared to the love that you have for Jesus. Like that's what he's trying to get. He is redefining the family. And and listen, as, as insane as some of this seems in our individualistic culture where we tend to worship our biological families, here is the truth. And I hope you hear this. When you trust in Jesus, you enter into the family of God. And by God's design, if you will stay committed to this family, you will have a chance to be reparented and replanted in the love of God, which will allow you to flourish, to grow and to mature and to relationally thrive. This is the power of the church. This is the power of of a family where Christ is at the center. It's a family where we can have our stories reinterpreted. Remember last year or last week, we talked about how we're all story-formed people. You cannot not tell yourself a story. Here's a big problem. Rich Plass talks about this. As kids, our, our children are wonderful observers, but they're terrible interpreters. And so we need at times to talk about our story and, and, and to have it reinterpreted. And when we do this, we have our wounds healed and generational sins broken so that we can become more and more the men or women we long to be. 
And therefore, in light of that, practically before we end, here's just two things I want to encourage us to do. Number one, if you're not in a community, please get into a community. Please move beyond the Sunday gathering. When we started this church, we specifically started it as one missional community in my living room. We did not start with this because we know as good as this is, this is not enough. It is not enough. You talk to people who come out of rehabs and they'll tell you, like, the people you run with will make or break you. You've got to get into a community. Get into a missional community. And and if you want to know how do I do that, again, use that Connect card in front of you. Fill that information out. Make yourself known. Come and talk to me. I will personally clear my schedule and do the best I can. And I know Chris will do the same thing to help you get into a missional community. It is so incredibly important that you do this. And then secondly, once you plug into a faith family, into a community, and you begin to build some trust, at some point, you need to process your story with another brother or sister in the faith. You need to be vulnerable and be willing to share the good, the bad, and the ugly, to take time to consider how the sins and shortcomings and struggles from your own family are impacting your life today. And Pete Scazzaro in his book says a great way to do that is by making what he calls a genogram. And I'll put this on the screen for you. Uh, This is just one that I did this past week. You can't read all this. That's fine. It's intentional. I don't want you to be able to read all of my, I don't want to air all of my family's dirty laundry. Um, But you literally, you just kind of go back as far as you want. I went to my grandparents, and so you can see on one side of the screen is my my grandparents on my mom's side, and the other side is my grandparents on my dad's side. And then I kind of begin to trace, like, you know, they had kids, and then, of course, my dad met my mom, and then they had kids. And so it's like, uh, you do that, and then all you're looking for is any sort of pattern that begins to arise as you think about your family history? Is there any destructive patterns or habits that you can just kind of notice in your family that could be impacting you today? And listen, you don't do this for the purpose of blame shifting, like, oh, it's my grandpa's fault I am the way I am. You don't do it for the purpose of of throwing great granny under the bus or anything like that, but you do all of this just for the purpose of becoming self-aware. If you cannot become aware, you cannot change it. Get into, again, AA or something like that, and they'll tell you one of the first things you've got to do is just become aware, like be honest about where you are, about what's going on in your life. So you have to become self-aware. And so take some time. Do an exercise like this, not for the purpose of being judgmental, but for the purpose of being curious, for just stopping and asking questions like, hmm, let me think about money. Like how does my parents, how do my, my grandparents, how do my family deal with money? What did they teach me about money? Did they teach me that money, the more money you have, the happier you'll be? Uh, did they teach us that, 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 you know, an abundance mentality of, man, it's all God's world and there's plenty? Or is it more of a scarcity mindset? If you've got to fight for it, it's hard to get. And if you don't get more money, like, you're not going to have security and you're not going to have satellite. Like, like, what did they teach you? What did they model for you when it came to money? Did they tithe? Were they generous or were they greedy? What about conflict? Like, look at your family history. And be like, how did we handle conflict? How did mom and dad handle conflict? Did they leave? They'd just be like, I'm out of here. This is too hard. Maybe a parent left. Uh, Did they try to sweep it under the rug? Like, we're not going to have conflict in this house. We're not going to talk about it. Right? Like, what do they do? Do they yell? Do they fight? Do they cuss? Like, what do they do? Consider things like your family's health. Because you can't separate the physical and the spiritual and emotional. Like, was there cancer? Was there depression? Was there anxiety? Was there trauma? Trauma matters. Trauma, it's very clear. There's all kinds of studies that trauma can and is passed down generationally. 
And so, for example, like my, uh, both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. And I don't know if you know anything about fighting in World War II, but if you're watching your buddies get blown to pieces, you eventually have to flip an emotional switch off so you don't go crazy. And that works in war, but it doesn't work very well in civilian life because what happens in civilian life is you become kind of a mute man. You work hard and you're honest, but you never emotionally invest in your kids. My mom told me that in the 84 years her dad was alive, he was a great man, but she said he never once told me he loved me. 84 years. Never said to his daughter, I love you. That impacts a person. It impacts my mom. It impacts my whole family. Consider these things. How do you handle grief and loss? How did your family handle grief and loss? How do they handle tragedy? Was sadness seen as a sign of weakness? Or were you allowed to be melancholy, to be sad every now and then? Or was it kind of like, no, you're a person of faith. You always have to turn that frown upside down. Even though Jesus cried, you can't cry. You know, I remember driving to school uh, one time, and, and I was crying about something. I can't remember what I was, probably fourth grade, something like that. And my mom said, look, I might have been driving to actually a church service. I can't remember where it was. We were together, and my mom said, look, you've got about five minutes to dry it up, or everyone's going to be able to see you've been crying. As if what you think about my tears matters more than why I'm crying to begin with. And, and I'll tell you, like, even as an adult, my wife knows this today, it's very hard for me to cry. It's very hard. Are there patterns of divorce? Is there infidelity? Is there addiction anywhere? You need to stop and look at your family history. Celebrate what is good, yes, but also be honest about what was bad so that as you begin to be honest about that, as you work through that in the power of the Holy Spirit in a safe and loving community, you can begin to cut out what is bad and break free from these generational sins. And I just want to say this to encourage you before we end, you can do this. It doesn't matter how jacked up your family history is, like change is possible. You can break free from generational sin. You can increase and become a person of love, a person who loves God and others well. And one of the greatest examples we have of this in the Bible is Joseph. If you go back to Joseph, what happened with him? He stopped the generational sins and replaced it with generational blessing. Remember his brother sold him into slavery? And then what happens is Joseph actually goes into slavery, gets accused of a rape he didn't commit, but he stays faithful to God. He actually cries to God. He, he, he cries. He weeps, the Bible says. It's not a sign of weakness. He's honest with God. I do not like what my brothers did to me. I don't like what, what's true about my family. I don't like all this dysfunction. I don't like all this pain. I don't like all this trauma, but he continued to trust God and process that with God and process that with others. And God's favor was on Joseph. The Bible said his hand was on Joseph, and he climbs to power. He becomes second in command in all of Egypt. And one day there's a famine again in Israel. And his brothers are sent to Egypt to try to find someone who can save Israel from this famine. And long and behold, who do they encounter? Baby brother, who they thought was dead. And yet he's second in command. They think, oh man, we're, we're screwed. Like we're, we're in trouble. He's going to kill us. And yet what does Joseph do? Because he had had his story reinterpreted. Listen to what he says. Don't be afraid. This is Genesis 50. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. One, one, one um, translation says uh, what you meant to do was something evil. You intended to harm me. But what you intended for evil, look at this, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. 
I will provide for you and your children. And then he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. You know, we all love a good revenge story. Uh, All the Rockies are on Netflix right now, by the way. There's something you could do this afternoon. Rocky IV, great revenge story. Rocky's like, you kill Apollo, I'll kill you, right? And takes down the Russian, the whole Soviet Union. It's incredible. We love a good revenge story. And in this moment, it would have been great, wouldn't it, Joseph been like, how you like me now? Right? How you like baby brother now? And bam, right? But he doesn't do that. His story had been reinterpreted. He said, you know what? All that stuff back there, it was evil. And that's what we got to do with this genogram stuff. You've got it. He doesn't say, oh, that wasn't no big deal. The past, the past. No, he said, that was bad stuff you guys did to me. I thought a lot about it. But then he says, God helped me to see that he was there the whole time. Through all the dysfunction, through all the brokenness, through all the generational sin, God was there. And he even showed me how he's been working all of that evil, all of that bad out for good. And as a result, rather than choosing hate, he chooses love, and it leads to the salvation of a nation. So this is possible. No matter how broken your past is, no matter how negative it is, You can break free, you can grow, you can mature, you can become a kind of person like Joseph that truly loves others, even your worst enemies. This is possible. And and if you don't believe that, just listen to these words and we're done. This is Acts 13, 38-39. The Apostle Paul says, Let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So no matter what's happened in your past, You can be forgiven, but then listen to this. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. You do not have to be a slave anymore. Doesn't matter how far back those sins run. Jesus wants to give you forgiveness and he wants to give you freedom. That's his offer to you. That's how good this Jesus is.